0: Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds On Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D O C T O R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, You've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have a special announcement. The brand new Reimagining Love Workbook, Volume 1, is now on sale on my website. You know, when I set out to create this podcast, I knew that I wanted the lessons and the insights from the episodes to feel tangible and immediately applicable to you and your relationships. As a couples therapist, I've seen time and time again that improving your relationships and your relationship with yourself takes effort and intention and time. We need strategies. We need practices that we can play with, as well as structured spaces to reflect And sometimes the best way to do this is to put pen to paper, to see what's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. So I decided that I would create companion worksheets for all of the solo deep dive episodes of Reimagining Love. These worksheets contain tables to fill out, relational self-awareness questions to answer, and reflection exercises, all tied to the topic of the episode. And these worksheets have been available to listeners through my newsletter as the corresponding episodes have aired. And now I've updated all of them and we've compiled them into this downloadable, easy to use workbook so that you can conveniently access them all in one place and At the end of the workbook, you're going to find a glossary of the therapeutic terms that I frequently use, as well as a list of all the podcast episodes thus far organized by topic in case you're seeking support in a particular area at a particular moment. So if you're ready to dive deeper into your relational self-awareness work, click the link in the show notes or head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash RL workbook to purchase this amazing bundle of resources, which you can use individually or with your partner. Welcome back to Reimagining Love. I have a really fantastic guest for you today, Dr. Lori Mintz, I have admired this woman's work for years now, and I'm so glad we finally get to have her here on the podcast. Dr. Lori Mintz is a feminist author, therapist, professor, and speaker whose life's work has been committed to helping people live more authentic, meaningful, joyful, and sexually satisfying lives through the art and science of psychology. As a tenured professor at the University of Florida, she teaches the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of very lucky undergraduate students each year. She also teaches and mentors graduate students in both their clinical and research training. Dr. Mintz has published over 50 research articles in academic journals and six chapters in academic books. She's the author of two popular press books both of which I love, and both of which are written with the aim of empowering women sexually. The first one, Becoming Cliterate: Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It, and then also, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, Reclaim Your Desire and Reignite Your Relationship. For over 30 years, Dr. Mintz has also maintained a small private practice working with both individuals and couples. So Lori joined me here on the podcast for a wide-ranging and really wonderful conversation about sexuality and pleasure. And I want to tell you that I love how Lori frames the discovery of female pleasure and sexual identity not only as a personal journey for an individual, but also as a way for us collectively to push back against a patriarchal culture that has aimed to keep women down since the beginning of time. I'm so glad that you get to hear from Lori, and I know you're going to find her just as inspiring as I do. Let's get right into the episode. Hi, Lori. I'm so glad that you're here.
1: I am so glad to be here.
0: <laughs> I have so much respect for your work as a sex educator, and I love how passionate you are about helping us break down sexual myths and replace them with knowledge and information and science. So thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you. And right back at you in terms of
1: my massive respect for your work. Mm, Thank you.
0: So, okay, well, I cannot wait to help the reimagining love listening audience become clitorate. But before we do that, I want to ask you the relational self-awareness question that I ask to all of our guests. Are you ready for this question? I am ready for this
1: question.
0: Okay. So, Lori, what is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships and what has it been teaching you these days? So this is a pretty simple answer, honestly.
1: But what I've really been working on in my relationship with my life partner, husband of over 37 years is being present. And I mean, present meaning not in the middle of a conversation, be distracted by a ding of my phone or pick up my phone. You know, so many ways I realize that I mean, as close as we are and as present as I am in my workday with my clients, etc., I am sometimes not as present with this person who's most important to me. And what it has been teaching me is just how susceptible I have been, like the rest of our culture, but I guess maybe somehow I wasn't paying attention to myself, of... Just how scattered I can be because of multiple demands, technology. And so, what it's teaching me is that it wouldn't seem like it should take a concerted effort to be present with the person you love most in the world. But I think I have, you know, become a little over dependent, addicted. I don't want to use that word, but on technology and my phone. And so I leave it in the other room for dinner. You know, I silence it. I even read a study that even a phone face down on the table, like is distracting. And I am aware of just how scattered and distracted I can be again with the person I love, you know, and who is most important to me. So I know that seems pretty simple, but I have to be really intentional to focus not on what's in my head or on my phone, but on what we're talking about.
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because it's a really good reminder for me because part of what's powerful about you reminding us is that this is work that you do and you need a reminder. You know, like you have read the research and you need this reminder and you need this practice for yourself. And so it's a reminder for you. It's a reminder for me. It's a reminder for listeners, I think, because even though we know it, we know that phones are distracting. We know that we're at risk in this modern era of being everywhere and nowhere. It's like, I don't know, for me at least, I need to hear it again and again because I slip. Like, I'll make the commitment and then I'll get slippy. And like you're saying, I think that it probably is my most at-risk with the people who matter most to me, certainly with my husband versus with, if I was sitting and talking to a student or a client or in a work context or with you, but that's, you know, so it is, it's quite unfair that sometimes the people who matter the most get the, the short end of the stick in terms of our attention and our presence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, being more present makes me feel more obviously so simple, right? But more connected Yeah, and it is. I mean, I never have my phone even near me when I'm on a podcast or with teaching or with clients. So why do I have it all the time when we're eating dinner or taking a walk and it dings and he could be in the middle of saying something. And even if I don't pick it right up, it's, oh. You know, is he going to finish soon so I can see what's on my phone? Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's in your head. You hear, yeah, you got a little itch inside of your brain.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's about mindful connection,
0: really, which is good for our individual health and it's good for our relational health. It really is essential. Even in a relationship, a 37-year-long marriage, where I imagine you're not worried day to day about whether y'all are going to make it or not make it. You're pretty secure in your connection with each other. But even in, right, it's sort of like ironic that the more secure a relationship is, sometimes that means that we give less attention or we cut corners more readily.
1: Yeah. And I know you only asked me for one, but is it okay if I share another that just popped in my mind as we're talking for sure go for it and and you're absolutely right that you know after 37 years I mean we often joke like nothing's going to come between us that we can think of you know at this point and even we don't even really fight anymore the things that used to be like oh (laughs) you know are just like oh that's my fault that's his fault whatever But the other thing that we constantly work on, and again, it seems so simple, but it's really behavioral and powerful, is not asking each other questions that are not really in questions, that are truly statements about what we want. We have really noticed, I notice it with my clients, but I work like when I'm really tired, you know, I'll often ask a question when I really need to make a statement about my needs. And it can go south because I could ask a question and not get the answer I want. Or a lot of times a question will be like, it sounds like a criticism, you know? So that, so a lot of this is about presence, presence of how I say things, presence of not having my phone, of being like, despite 37 years, being really intentional in our relationship.
0: Can you think of an example or can you give us an example of a time when you perhaps would have asked a question, but it would have been healthier, more adaptive, more intimacy promoting if you had made it into a statement? What's an example of that?
1: Well, the exam- I can use an example I tell my clients about, but I'll use one from my own life, is I get really tired at night. So I go to bed earlier than my husband. And I was like, you know, laying in bed, you know, reading my book, about to go to sleep. And he's like in there folding laundry, which is wonderful. I'm glad he's folding the laundry. But instead of saying, I'm really tired, I'd like you to fold that laundry outside. I mean, it's so simple. I was like, Are you going to be folding that laundry much longer? <laughs> and-
0: <laughs> I think everyone can relate to that. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Go ahead. And, yeah. you know,
1: he just laughed, you know. But he could have taken it as a criticism sure, or a real question, which it wasn't. And what I really needed to say is, hey, I really appreciate you folding the laundry, but I don't want you to do it while I'm trying to fall asleep. I mean, it's so simple, but it's really being intentional about what I feel, what I want, and saying it, you know, rather than asking a non-question. I always tell my clients, do you want to have sex is never actually a question. Because it either means I do, and I hope you do, or it means I really don't, so I hope you don't. And if you ask a question that isn't a question, which I think a lot of women do, especially to not own our needs, you get the wrong answer or it comes out as a critique. I've seen this so many times with my clients, you know, like I had a client the other day say, you know, are you going to keep that haircut that you just got for a while? Oh, geez. You know, that's a criticism, but not a question, but a a statement would be I really like the way you looked better with your other haircut. So I really think this is something that, and again, it's about being mindful of what I want, what I
0: need, and being there
1: with my partner.
0: Well, and just knowing that directness and kindness can go hand in hand. I think that as you mentioned with, for women, especially sometimes we do that. What ends up sometimes feeling at worst, feeling passive aggressive, at best, feeling confusing, right? To our partners, we have to rest on solid ground, knowing that we can ask for what we need or, or state what we need and that that can be kind, that kindness and clarity can go hand in hand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I don't remember who made the post, so I should be giving them credit, but I saw something on social media that said, my long love language is when you, maybe you posted, it. I don't think so, but if you did, let me know. My love language <laughs> is when you tell me what you want, oh, and I don't
0: have to guess. Right, yeah, you've given us a beautiful segue into literacy because that is, I think, a part of literacy, right, is understanding and owning and feeling not apologetic for desire and pleasure. So that's a really lovely bridge to our main topic today. So you wrote the book Becoming clitterate which is probably the best title of any book. I mean, I think every other book that's going to be published for the rest of eternity is going to just be in the shadow of the title of this book. Becoming clitterate is just an incredible title. And it came out in 2017 and it remains a well-loved highly valuable book. So first of all I want to start by just thanking you for writing this book. It's such an important and valuable contribution to our field and to our world. Thank you so much for saying that. That means a lot. So start us off by helping us understand what does it mean to be cliterate?
1: Okay. So to be cliterate, obviously it's a play on literacy and the clitoris and we know that the clitoris is women's, most women and people with vulva's most reliable route to orgasm. I can't believe in 2023, I still have to say that, but I do because we don't learn about it in education. We don't see it in mainstream movies. It's just not part of our cultural narrative. Even the words we use, right? We use sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same, And we relegate foreplay, a lead up to this main event, which involves clitoral stimulation. So even our language sort of reflects and devalues women's most reliable route to orgasm. So being clitorate, there's a personal and a cultural piece to it. The cultural piece is working for change so that we don't use the word sex and intercourses. If they're one and the same, we eliminate the word foreplay. We stop calling our entire genitals a vagina because by doing so, we're linguistically erasing the part of ourselves that give us the most pleasure. We call out false images. So that's the cultural piece. But the individual piece is just what we were talking about earlier with the questions that aren't questions. It's knowing your own most reliable route to orgasm and Being able to feel empowered to get that type of stimulation, not just alone, but with a partner. And to be able to communicate about that and think about that and be proud of your sexuality and your clitoris, basically. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you. Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. What has sort of surprised and delighted you most since the book came out in 2017? Like what's been the most sort of surprising evolution or discovery? Like what has touched you the most in terms of the book being out in the world? I think what I was
1: surprised about came before the book came out and the reason for the book, but what's touched me is readers' reactions. So this, what surprised me and the reason I wrote the book is I teach the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of students a year. And I was just upset, blown away by the fact that these young women felt broken They felt something was wrong with them still, you know, even though we've known about the clitoris for a very long time now, but it's knowledge that was lost to this generation. And that really surprised me and inspired me to write the book. What has touched me, and I guess surprised me as well, now that I'm thinking about it, what has touched me is the countless readers who have contacted me and said that my book changed their life and that they had felt broken and they hadn't been orgasming. They had been faking and that they were empowered to orgasm. And I think the part that surprised me the most is I thought this was just not just, but I thought it was a book focused on empowering women to orgasm, close the orgasm gap culturally. What surprised me is the number of women who told me That after they became empowered in the bedroom, they felt more empowered in the rest of their life. That we often learn that it's the opposite, right? Learn to say your needs, learn to, you know, be assertive and clear about what you want, like we were just talking about in life and then apply it to the bedroom. But I've had many, many women say, it was like, when I could do this in the bedroom, I just thought I'm unstoppable. If I can do this in my bedroom, I can do it at work. I can do it with my children, you know, not about sex, obviously, but the idea of I can be empowered to love myself and to ask for what I want and that kind of thing. So that really surprised
0: and delighted me. I love that. I think, what it makes me think about is how much we do kind of imagine life over here and our sex life over there and these these are two realms, think especially with sort of this good girl, bad girl split that so many of us who are socialized as girls and women have is that you know these parts of us have to stay very segregated, and so I love this idea, of course, that when I feel more in tune with my body, more in touch with my body, more empowered in my body. I'm more embodied. I'm more connected to my source, my grounding, my footing, my voice. But I love that it surprised you. And I love hearing it because it, it's really quite touching and it makes so much sense. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think it really also underscores that you're right, not that we shouldn't be separating life here and life there, but it also underscores how central sexual empowerment and sexual satisfaction is to self esteem to life satisfaction that it's not just this part over here it's really central
0: what are you what are you doing right now how are you holding up in terms of how all of this literacy work Stands in light of, at least in the US, Roe versus Wade being overturned. You know, how are you talking differently? How are you teaching differently in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling?
1: Oh, well, I, how am I holding (laughs) up? Probably much like many of us. I'm mad. I'm devastated. I'm worried. You know, all of that. How I am teaching differently. I'm not doing anything differently if anything i'm amplifying the message because and when i teach you know i i have this wonderful sex positive sexual medicine provider that lectures on contraception and stis and abortion and she came i thought how's she going to change her lecture you know and she you know obviously she changed it a bit but when i saw up on the board you know up on the powerpoint you know, her talking about Roe v. Wade to my students, I started to cry. There were several women in the class crying. Like that was a point where it really, really hit hard. But I think that the overturning of Roe v. Wade and many other things that are happening really underscore the same issue that had me right becoming clitorate, which is the patriarchy and misogyny. And I remember right after the book was published, I got a very mean message on social media basically saying, you know, women are being stoned to death and you're worried about having women find their clit like this is useless. And there was a moment where I just thought, oh, they're right. They're right. What have I done? And then my very dear friend said, no, Lori, all of this, all of this women being stoned to death. Certainly, I'm not comparing that to the orgasm gap or Roe v. Wade. I'm not, they are not equal. But she said, Lori, they're all related to the same root source, the devaluing of women, the fear of women, the hatred of women, and seeing us as objects rather than as empowered individuals with choices.
0: It's good to connect with you about that because I think about it a lot and I worry about it a lot and I have continued. I mean, it becomes now part of how I teach and it, and it, it becomes part of the conversation. But I love that you are reminding us they're all facets of the same core fear, hatred, unhealed, perpetuated generational trauma of misogyny and patriarchy and all of that. And that it's all aspects of the same kind of fight and struggle. And we don't quiet down about sexuality and sexual empowerment because of this. Because that's very likely what the desired outcome is, right? Is that we take all of this off the table. Like, okay, then we won't, we just won't talk about sex anymore. We won't talk about pleasure. And you can't talk about pleasure if all you're worrying about is safety. But we we have to keep both in the conversation.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it does, I I wouldn't say my teaching hasn't changed. Like, Certainly now when I talk about pleasure, I have to talk even more about fear of pregnancy and, you know, birth control and all of that. But I certainly haven't, I have only amplified my message and added to it in the cultural context that we're
0: in. That's right. Okay, so you have mentioned the orgasm gap a couple of times. And, you know, if somebody is not familiar with what the orgasm gap is, can you just talk us through what the orgasm gap is and and how it highlights the importance of this work?
1: Yes. So the orgasm gap is the consistent finding in the research literature that when cisgender women, so people assigned a sex of female um, at birth who identify as women, get it on with cisgender men the women are having substantially fewer orgasms than the men. So just to highlight a few statistics in a, one study, 39% of women versus 91% of men said they usually are always orgasmed or a, se- or a sexual encounter. Now that study didn't ask the context of the sex, but subsequent research tells us that it's biggest in hookup sex Um, In a study I conducted, it was 55% of men versus 10% of women said they usually orgasm during hookup sex, gets smaller with friends and benefits, gets even smaller in relationship sex, but it never... The gap
0: gets smaller. Yeah, the
1: gap. Yes, thank Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. The gap Mm -hmm. gets smaller, but it never usually closes altogether. In one study of relationship sex, for example, it was like, think it was 95% of men versus like 68% of women. And a lot of people will look at this data and say, oh, it's because women's bodies are difficult. Our orgasms are elusive. But other orgasm gap, two other types of gaps tell us that's not true. We know that when women have sex with other women, they have way more orgasms than with men. And we know that when women are alone, 95% orgasm easily and within minutes. And the last thing I'll say is my favorite study to cite to say it's not our bodies is it was a very small study, but it was bisexual women who hooked up with both women and men. So same woman, same body. Okay. And They asked the the respondents, how often do you orgasm during first-time hookup sex when your partner's a woman, when your partner's a man? Again, same woman, same body, 65% when with a woman, 7% when with a man. So that says the problem is heterosexual sex, the way we do it, not our bodies. It's culture, not our bodies.
0: I want us to dive into what happens between women and men in the bedroom. But I also, I first want to say that one of the things I love about your work on cliteracy is that you also are crystal clear that becoming clitorate liberates men as well, men who have sex with women. So why is that? Why would becoming clitorate help the men who make love with women? Absolutely. So all
1: these myths, around women should orgasm from penetration it makes women feel broken when they don't but it puts an enormous amount of pressure on men to give a woman an orgasm by lasting long and thrusting hard or to feel bad if their penis isn't big which is a great irony because the research shows that you know most women are like no i'm a little afraid like i don't you know but it puts so much pressure on them and, you know, I love Ian Kerner's book, She Comes First. And in fact, I want to credit him for the word clitorate and "cliteracy." He coined that term with his book. And when I wanted to write mine, I reached out to him and said, can I use the word? And he generously said, of course, the more people who hear the word, the better. But he's got a paragraph in there that I just love that answers the question. He basically says something along the lines of, like for men who've been told their whole self-worth is on their penis, it's kind of a bitter pill to swallow that it isn't. But the pill doesn't have to be bitter, he says. In fact, once swallowed, it can be freeing and liberating because we are then free to love with more of ourselves To love with our whole selves, not just our penis, our hands, our mouths, our mind, our body. And that in doing this, it frees us up. And I just love the way he phrases that.
0: I love that. That is, I mean, it's a reminder, you know, you you already have made the parallel between the personal and the cultural, but there again, it's like what frees, some of us frees all of us. And so it's like, as women get free and really honor what their most reliable routes to pleasure and orgasm are, it also behooves and benefits the men that they love as well. Yeah. And when we think about, you know, the other research finding that's so consistent is, Women are far more likely to struggle with decreased and compromised libido, which just makes so much sense, right? If erotic experiences are not inherently rewarding, right? If orgasm isn't reliable, if a partner isn't focused on what feels good, it makes sense that desire is going to be compromised. And so when heterosexual couples, especially, can get themselves freed from this script that doesn't really particularly benefit her, and they find ways of being together that are more reliably orgasm producing for her, it's likely to mean that she wants it more, right? She wants to come back to the space with him where she knows she's going to feel good and he knows that she's going to feel good. And so there's a way in which it can also becoming clitorate, I think can also heal like the desire discrepancies that we see so much and can help her just feel more like intrinsically motivated to want to be erotic and sexual.
1: Right. If women were having better sex, they would want it more, is basically the, the point, right? And many women are not. I mean, I've talked to women, I'm sure you have too, that say they've been faking like 20, 30 years and thinking something was wrong with them. So who's going to desire that kind of an encounter?
0: no because it's relationally disconnecting and it's internally quite self abandoning right and i know i know that you know the research you cited in your TED talk that you know about 70% of women are so report faking orgasms. And it's more than, I mean, I know that men and penis bodied folks also fake orgasms, but it's the, there's a, there's a discrepancy there and it's women more likely than men for sure. And it's to fake an orgasm is an attempted solution to a problem, right? It's an attempt to make things easier all around for everybody, but it creates a kind of just rift within the self and a relational rift as well.
1: Absolutely. You're teaching your partner exactly what doesn't work for you. And you're, you know, you're not being authentic and honest and connected. And also, yeah, men and penis bodied people fake orgasm, but interestingly, fake right for different reasons. The research shows women fake either to avoid appearing abnormal, to have sex end, or to make their partner feel better. Those are their top reasons. Men often fake because. They already had an orgasm that day and also they, and they want sex to end, you know? So it's very, it's not as internal. It's Mm -hmm. not as internal.
0: Right. It's not kind of the shame. It's not a deficit base. What you said really clearly is women fake because they feel like there's a core belief. Something is wrong with me. I should be coming from this. I'm not coming from this. And therefore I have to act like I am.
1: Yeah. And he thinks I should, and he thinks he should be doing this. So I want to make him feel good instead of telling them what I need.
0: yeah. So can we talk a little bit about if there is a couple, a woman in a couple where she's been faking perhaps for a long time. And as she becomes clitorate, as she takes sexy back, whatever, (laughs) but you know, title you want to use here. And she wants to start to like come clean and talk to her partner about, listen, I, we need to do this differently. And I, what do you, what do you want to be whispering in her ear about how to make that shift? What do you think, how does it tend to go best for for women and for their partners when they begin to step away from faking?
1: Well, I've worked with a lot of women on this and I'm really interested in what you think too about this. I don't think for all women that it's going to be a good situation to admit faking. It's really hard to explain. I was doing this because I felt a deficit. I was doing this because I wanted you to feel good. And it, it, sometimes the admission of that can cause, co- I mean, I'm not saying never, but I've worked with people who I think that admission could cause a lot of damage. So, you know, that whole concept of kind of um, benevolent or compassionate omission really works in this case, where you can say what you want without saying the faking part. So I've had many clients have great success was sitting down with their partner, really owning their needs and saying, Look, like I love you i like I like our sex life, but I want to like it even more and I was listening to this amazing podcast, and I or I read this amazing book or watched this talk or whatever, and I learned something about my own body I learned and that My orgasms will be much more strong, powerful, quick, enhanced if I get more clitoral stimulation or if I use a vibrator, which we certainly can talk about. And I think that sounds really fun to try. Like, I would love us to do more of that. And here are some ideas I have. How do you feel about that?
0: I love the idea of the compassionate omission. That's a really gentle way of saying it. And it's a way of moving into truth without getting so focused on what was. I mean, I think, you know, ideally the two of them would grieve together the mass, you know, bill of lies that we've all been told about what sex should look like. Right. Like that's the most sort of like evolved imagining of it is that, is that both partners grieve like this sucks. Like, how did you not learn what, you know, how did neither of us ever see the diagram of the external female genitalia? Like, how did we not know this? Like we were sold this lie and, you know, kind of grieving together. But I think that's probably quite a a high bar. And that I could imagine a path for a couple that's just exactly as you are saying, where she says, like, I, you know, listen, I love what we have, but I'm wondering about some expansion, some other, you know, some other ways of doing it. And yeah, I'd like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love your vision of (laughs) grieving together. I mean, if I could guarantee that's what would happen rather than more damage, more harm, more disconnect, that would be great. But it's not always possible, I think. And so I do think this is another route to that.
0: Yeah. I did a workshop maybe a year ago now, probably with 50 or 60 men in their 40s, 50s and 60s. And I was going through you know, the diagram and talking about the clitoris. And it really hurt my heart that so, so, so few of them had ever seen a diagram of the clitoris. And these are men who have been married to women for decades and decades. And it, so it is... Um, we have a ways to go. I think there's hope, you know, with the younger generation. I don't. I know that I, I, I'm i wondering, you know, you were saying before that it, there still is a need for education, but it feels like it's much easier to get this education out there. And of course, it's always possible for folks of all ages to learn this, but I, I suspect that there are lots of couples that have been together for a while and just haven't ever, you know, found ways of making love that really honor clitoris.
1: Right. Right. And one of the funniest comments I ever got from a reader is I'm 70 years old. I've been married three different times. And had I read your book, I wouldn't have been divorced the first time. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, I mean, cause it's important stuff, you know, it's important that sexual connection. So, but I do have hope along with you and I've seen kind of goes back to the question you asked me earlier of surprises one pleasant surprise i've seen not from my book but you know teaching my class every year after year you know i initially wrote my book in response to my students lack of knowledge now i sometimes stand up there and i think did y'all read my book or did, how did you know this because there's way way less myths That's to cool. debunk if you will around female pleasure which is great
0: You know what I think it is? And you tell me if you've heard this, too. I think a lot of it is that just that parents of, you know, teens and emerging adults, there are a lot of feminist parents, both, you know, of all genders who are imparting this. You know, I think that for years and years, I mean, and still a lot of a lot of kids, you know, the sex talk at home is like, whatever, don't get pregnant or don't. (laughs) Um, But I do think that there are more parents, you know, probably percentage wise, more parents who are offering more nuanced conversations. At least I think that's a shift I've seen in my years of teaching.
1: I definitely think that's true. I definitely think that's true. Although, you know, I think it's also ba- there's based in geography too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in the South, right? And so I have a lot of students raised in really conservative purity culture I mean, who, you know, this is so mind-blowing for them. I mean,
0: it varies, I think, but I
1: do see more and more of that. Absolutely.
0: I also wanted to make sure I talked to you about this, which is as women and their partners become more literate, it means really starting to honor manual stimulation and oral stimulation. And so I think one of the next constraints that can happen or one of the next challenges that can happen is around becoming more comfortable giving and receiving oral sex. So what are things that you'd want somebody to know, like if and as they are wanting to integrate more certainly more oral sex into their repertoire. Like what, if somebody's feeling self-conscious, they're feeling like not particularly empowered to ask for it or to relax into receiving it. What what advice and guidance do you have?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a great question. I think it's manual, oral, and I and vibrator stimulation too. I'd love if we got to that because I see more pushback on that even than oral sex. But, you know, I think so many women who are having trouble receiving oral, it's due to thinking that their genitals smell bad or their genitals look bad. And in terms of the smell, I think that's another cultural issue, right? Because and it's based on capitalism. You know, products like scented pads, which are very bad for you, which you know that, and douches you know, and feminine sprays. I even saw a feminine, like feminine washes. They're all built on the idea that vaginas should not smell like vaginas. And vaginas do smell like vaginas and you need to know what your smells like. So when it changes, you can see a doctor. But the idea that we're smelly and dirty is a cultural construct. And, you know, we know that men are chosen for porn for having larger than average Penises, women are often chosen for having even and petite inner lips or they've had surgery or images are digitally altered. And so really like there's some great resources, the great wall of vaginas, petals. I love that. The gyno diversity is one of my favorites. It's an online site and really helping a woman to understand it is completely normative to have one inner lip bigger than the outer lip That every vulva is unique and beautiful like a snowflake and that you smell just fine. You know, sure, you can wash with water or whatever, but you don't have to mask your smell. So really teaching people what vulvas are supposed to look like goes a long way. And then in terms of actually relaxing into it, mindfulness. Mindfulness is so key. You know, what is mindfulness, right? It's the mind and the body in the same place rather than your vagina is in the middle of getting, you know, given oral sex and you're, ooh, do I smell bad? Do I look bad? Is it taking too long? So working with your attitudes, your body image, and your mindfulness. Beautiful.
0: Yep. And I think all of that applies to the person who's giving oral sex, no matter if that's a, a no matter their gender as well as like it, it, teaching them and get, giving them the education that that vaginas are not the vulvas are not dirty and they don't have you know the, to not be afraid and to and to learn how I means what Ian Kerner's book is so wonderful for is to learn how to give oral sex right that there actually is there are things you can learn and you can connect with her around what's feeling good and checking in as you go and so there's so that it's both. The giver, like, showing up attentive and curious and patient, and the receiver showing up mindful and self-compassionate and, um, yeah, and relaxed.
1: Yes, beautiful. I love that. I love that addition. Absolutely. Both.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so sex toys i i gotta somehow get you around to your raft metaphor which i use all the time now and i quote you and i cite you so talk to us about why we ought not be afraid of sex toys and then just just weave in there your beautiful raft metaphor please
1: absolutely (laughs) i would love to and thank you for asking that so I learned something recent. Well, certainly Debbie Herbanek has done a great job researching vibrators. And, you know, her research is clear that women who use them have easier and more frequent orgasms and that a male partner's acceptance of a female partner's use is highly related to her sexual satisfaction. I learned something really interesting recently, and that is why biologically vibrators are so helpful that we have special receptors on our vulva and clitoris, and they're also on the penis found nowhere else on the body that respond to vibration. They have a fancy name. I can't remember them. A urologist colleague shared it with me. And so, I mean, that's why they work. I mean, our vulvas have special nerves that respond to
0: vibrators that like vibration
1: yes and nowhere else you can put one on your arm and it won't do the same thing because there's not that those receptors there so i talk to clients a lot about vibrators and how they enhance orgasms they enhance pleasure and then there's several myths we have to debunk right And one of them is that it will desensitize your clit, which what people usually mean by that is, I'll always need it. And my answer is, so what? I mean, we don't tell men, oh, don't get used to intercourse or oral sex, a blowjob, because you'll always need it. It's only when it comes to sex toys, we say, what if you always need it? So that's something. Also, there was a study of rabbits who have very similar clitorises to women, and vibration actually increased sensitivity, not decreased it. But the other myth is that it will substitute for your partner. You know, it'll take their place. And, you know, many sex educators, you know, say you included, like, no, they don't, vibrators don't kiss. They don't cuddle. They don't say, I love you. They just provide this great stimulation, which speaking of stimulation, by the way, because the penis has those same receptors, I often tell couples, well, if a woman is holding a vibrator to her vulva while your penis is there, you're going to catch vicarious vibrations. And you're going to really like that too. But the raft metaphor is about it substituting for a partner. So If you were in the pool and you were swimming with your partner and you had a raft, you're jumping on the raft and off the raft, kissing on the raft, kissing in the water, laying on the raft, you wouldn't go home and call your friend and go, my raft and I had the best day together. Oh, my boyfriend was there. You wouldn't even mention the raft because it was just a tool to enhance the experience that you are having with your partner in the pool. And the same is true with a vibrator. It's just a tool to enhance the sexual experience.
0: Oh, I mean, you're just a gifted educator. Like that's just so beautifully said, so simple, so normalizing, so gentle. Yeah, it is all of those fears don't, those fears don't make sense. Like you did a beautiful job of just taking them down, like just deconstructing the fear and really giving permission that a tool like a vibrator, and we're living in an era where the sex toy industry, we I've had Al Fine of Dame on the show before. I mean, Dame and other wonderful sex toy companies are just creating wonderful tools for folks with vulvas that are just so supportive and not replacements for a partner, but just a tool to be used with a partner. Exactly. Or, or without alone. a partner. Either way.
1: Partner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm so honored by your compliment and I'm so glad that I could
0: share my raft metaphor with your listeners. I love the raft <laughs> metaphor. It's like I'm not having Lori on and not doing <laughs> the raft metaphor. <laughs> well i'm so glad that we had a chance to get together i love your teaching i think there's so many wonderful takeaways for listeners in this conversation
1: well and and you know i love taking sexy back i love your work so it's just such an honor to be here with you
0: so I, we are going to have links in the show notes to Becoming literate. We're going to link to bookshop.org because we love to support the independent booksellers. What other, and you and we'll link to your TED Talk also, which I love and which is always in my Marriage 101 syllabus every year. So what, um, what other resources, where else would you like to send people to learn more about you and your work.
1: Well, they can look on my website D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z.com. but the place that I'm most active in I is Instagram, which I know you're very active as well, and I kind of think about Instagram as giving bite-sized sex education. So, I would love if listeners would follow me on Instagram as well or Facebook which is, same, same. And your yeah.
0: Instagram is at Dr. Lori Mintz. Right?
1: Yeah, and so is my Facebook. Yes, yeah. your
0: Instagram is funny. You do you find these awesome? I mean, it's educational, but also it's fun. Like there are, I'm always in there. Look, you have such such wonderful memes that you find and post and share. So it is educational and humorous, all of the things.
1: Oh well, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, I love educating with humor, especially about sex, because you know it kind of takes the temperature down a little, and it, it's fun. We should be able to connect, but we should also be able to laugh because I think laughter also enhances not only comfort, but connection.
0: That's right. That's right. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Lori Mintz.
1: Well, thank you for having me
0: on. Thank you, Dr. Lori, for being here with me today. I hope that you enjoyed hearing all of Dr. Lori's wisdom and her great ideas for reclaiming your desire and reigniting your relationship. You can find a link to her popular press books in the show notes. And we also shared a link in the show notes to her wonderful Instagram feed, which I love because she moves effortlessly between science and psychology and humor. So I definitely urge you to learn more about all the wonderful work that she does. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.